Today, though, I want to quickly recap kind of a high-level overview of the Old Testament timeline that we talked about a few weeks ago, just to refresh our memory. And then we're going to look at the nature of prophets and prophecy and consider its implications for today. So just as a refresher, um, we can divide the era of the minor prophets into three basic sections. Um, that's right. We're whiteboarding it. Get used to it. We can divide this into three basic sections, and, and we're dividing these sections kind of based on the socio-political status of the Hebrew people and also the prominent outside aggressor out the t- at the time, because throughout this season, there are a number of different um, other military forces from other countries that come in to either overtake or destroy or oppress the people. The minor prophets span a period of many centuries from 770 BC to 430 BC. And these were tumultuous times in the nation of Israel. Israel had gone from a golden age during the time of King David and King Solomon. It was a time of wealth. It was a time of great peace. It was a time of military power. They'd gone from that golden age to a time of division under Solomon's son, Rehoboam. The nation divides in two, with most tribes heading to the north to form the kingdom of Israel, and just a couple of tribes, primarily the tribe of Judah, remaining in the south, forming the kingdom of Judah. And most notably, the kingdom of Judah was also the location of Jerusalem, which was significant, obviously, for Hebrew worship. Jerusalem is not only the holy city of God, but it is also the location of the fabulous Temple of Solomon, which was just this unbelievable, lavish, extravagant, almost luxurious temple that had been built by King Solomon. So the nation is divided in this first section. And so we call it the era of the divided kingdom. During this time, the primary outside aggressing force are the Assyrians. The Assyrians were brutal people. Like they were known for like heinous, what we would think of today as like war crimes. Like they were known for just how violent they were. Like things that they would do torture-wise to the people that they captured. I mean, they were known for like skinning people alive and, and just leaving people to die without their skin on. I mean, just horrible things that they would do. And so this struck fear into everybody. Um, We'll see this next week as we begin studying Jonah, who was famously sent by God to the Assyrian capital city of Nineveh to declare the word of the Lord and to call the Assyrians to repentance. Eventually, though, the northern kingdom of Israel falls to the Assyrians, and it is like completely destroyed by them, and the people are dispersed and scattered. This happens in 722 BC. So we're we're still hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, right, before the time of Christ. Judah is also eventually conquered in 598 BC, not by the Assyrians, though. They're conquered by the Babylonians, or you'll sometimes hear them called the Chaldeans. The Babylonians capture Jerusalem. Uh, They're led by King Nebuchadnezzar, who you've maybe heard of from the story of Daniel. And they ransack Jerusalem and destroy the Temple of Solomon. I mean, they just, they completely annihilate the place. 
This time, though, rather than the tribes of Judah like being scattered to the wind and kind of dispersed and lost, instead, the tribes are carried away in exile to Babylon. They're essentially prisoners or slaves. Um, but yet, once they get to Babylon, they are able to live a somewhat normal life there. And if you haven't read the story of the book of Daniel and Daniel's friend Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I, was in, I would encourage you to go read that. It will give you a sense of what life was like for people who were living during the Babylonian exile. They were not in their land. They were not in their home. They could not worship the way that they wanted to worship. They were essentially kidnapped victims. Less than 100 years later, though, in 539 B.C., the Persians conquer the Babylonians. And eventually, the Persians allow the people of Judah to begin to return to their land and return to the city of Jerusalem. So we call this the return They begin coming back to the land, and yet Israel, the land of their faith, the land of their fathers, is a shell of its former self. Most of the tribes are now dispersed. Other pagan tribes have taken up residence and prominence in the land. The city and the temple that are eventually rebuilt are like a shadow of their former selves. This is actually a short enough span of time that there are people who are taken away in exile who had seen the real temple, the first temple, the temple of Solomon, who had seen that, who are actually old and are able to return to Jerusalem and see the new temple that is eventually constructed. And what scripture tells us is that they weep because it's just nothing like what the temple was before. So these are the three basic sections that we will divide uh, our study of the minor prophets into, and um, this will kind of guide us as we go through. So we will begin with prophets who are laboring during the divided kingdom, we'll move to the period of the exile, and then ultimately to the season in which people are returning to Jerusalem. Our text today picks up during the era of the divided kingdom. Um, At this time, a man named Jehoshaphat is king over Judah. A man named Jehoram is king over Israel. And this is a unique moment. So, So we're just a few decades into the divided kingdom. I think Jehoshaphat is like the fourth king within the divided kingdom to reign in Judah. And this is a unique moment because the two kingdoms actually come together. So Jehoram, who is king in Israel, enlists Jehoshaphat's help and also the help of another king from the land of Edom, and they devise a plan. And the reason why they're doing this is because the land of Moab, which has been sort of a tax-paying ally of Israel, has now rebelled against Israel. They've refused to kind of pay their dues to Israel. They're they're trying to strike out on their own without being encumbered by their relationship to Israel. And so Jehoram says, I've got to get some help here, and we've got to go, like, oppose them in battle. So he brings along Jehoshaphat, who agrees to do this. He brings along the 
king from Edom. And so this sort of triumvirate goes against the people of Moab. And so they devise this plan to surprise Moab by marching their armies a great distance around and sort of coming in the back door of Moab. They think if we can just kind of in this circuitous way come around, they're never going to expect us coming. However, this winds up being a terrible plan because the distance is so great, they get out in the wilderness and there's no water. And so they're leading these armies, three armies, they're leading all of these animals that they have to take along with them to eat and to provide, you know, nourishment. And they get out there and there is just no water. So the armies and the animals, the men, the kings, everybody is literally dying of thirst. And then, if you look at verse 10, it says, Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king, then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. So these kings get into a bind. They realize they need God's help in a big way. And so what do they do? Do they get out on their knees and pray for deliverance? No, that's not what they do. They look for a prophet. They look for a prophet. And they find the prophet... Elisha. So our question this morning is this. Who are the prophets? What what exactly do they do? More than likely, you've heard of some prophets from the Old Testament. You've heard of guys like Isaiah and Ezekiel. You've heard of Jeremiah, maybe. But the prophets we're studying in this series are guys that maybe you've heard of, but more than likely, you know nothing about them. What did Hosea do, right? What did Obadiah do? For many Christians in America today, this is a part of the Bible that is completely unexplored. Not only is it unexplored, we have no clue what relevance it could even have for us. Because most of the prophecy that's being declared by the minor prophets um, is not necessarily messianic prophecy or prophecy having to do with Jesus, even though there is some in there. And most of it is not like end-time prophecy either. And that tends to be the only kind of prophecy that we evangelical Americans are interested in. And yet a great bulk of the prophecy in the Old Testament has to do with the people of Israel in their contemporary world. So who are these prophets? What exactly did they do? Well, in the most basic terms, a prophet is someone chosen and sent by God to declare his word. And normally God's message through the prophets was one of three things. It was either a message of blessing a message of warning, or a message of curse. Prophets aren't fortune tellers. They're not magicians, even though people try to treat them in this way. Prophets can't see the future unless God gives them insight. And even then, their insight is limited. They are not omniscient. They are primarily a mouthpiece to declare God's word to the people. And in the story of Israel, most of the prophets were not celebrated 
or even appreciated in their day because often they were bringing bad news, right? They were often bringing a word of warning or they were bringing a word of curse. So many of the prophets have incredibly hard lives, like miserable lives. The things that God calls them to are beyond hard. Things that some of us just can't even fathom. In some cases, such as the case of Hosea, who we'll look at in a few weeks, God wants their lives to be like a living, visible metaphor for the sin of Israel. And so God calls Hosea into just an unfathomable situation so that his life will serve as a word of prophecy in and of itself. It's not pretty. The prophet that we are perhaps most familiar with in the Old Testament is actually someone who we probably don't think of as a prophet, and that's Moses. But Moses was most certainly a prophet. He was called and sent by God to declare God's word and accomplish God's purposes. Moses is the one who goes on the mountain and meets with God and receives the law of God and then brings it down and declares it to the people. Moses is the one who goes before the Lord and who fasts and who intercedes on behalf of the people when God wants to annihilate them because of their sin. Moses is the middleman. God doesn't speak directly to the people of Israel, but instead he speaks to Moses and Moses declares God's word. And so this is the basic framework of how prophets and prophecy work. In ancient Israel, there was sort of a threefold framework. You had kings who ruled and who engaged militarily. You had priests whose primary task was really to facilitate the sacrificial system of temple worship. And then you had prophets who declared the word of the Lord. So the priests of the Old Testament were not preachers. The prophets really accomplished more of that role. That was really more their realm. So in our text today, as these three kings find themselves in dire straits, they don't call a priest to inquire of the Lord. They call a prophet. Now, Elijah was a fascinating guy. He was a prophet, actually, of the northern kingdom. That's where he lived in Israel. He was no fan of his kingdom. He was no fan of his king, Jehoram. He was no fan of Jehoram because Jehoram did not honor the Lord. Hence the exchange we have at the beginning of our text. If you look at verse 13, Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? This is one of his citizens, one of his servants, per se. The king comes to him and he says, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother, right? He's saying, "Go go to the false prophets, go to the pagan prophets that you've allowed to proliferate in the land, not the prophets of the one true God. Go to those prophets, like, because what I'm going to tell you may not be what you want to hear. I don't think you're interested in maybe some of the things I have to tell you. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, verse 14, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were it not that I cared about him, I would neither look at you nor see you. 
So strong words from Elisha. He was brash. He was bold. So Elisha really only agrees to help because of Jehoshaphat, who is in general a good king. Elisha calls for a musician to play. And then he says the lines that precede any true prophecy in the scriptures. Thus says the Lord. And this is his prophecy, or what you might call his oracle. Verse 16. And he said, thus says the Lord. I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. So this is basically what a prophet does. He's sent by the Lord to deliver a message. He inquires of the Lord. In this instance, the message was actually a blessing, right? It wasn't a warning. It wasn't a curse. It's God's actually going to give you water. And rain's not even going to come. Water's just going to come. And your livestock's going to be able to drink. You're going to be able to drink. And not only that, you're going to prevail in battle over the Moabites. But often, as will be the case for many of the minor prophets, the message is warning. The message is curse because of the sin of the people. So as we said a few minutes ago, if you have gone to a church that talks at all about prophecy, more than likely they've talked about it in the context of messianic prophecy, of which there are hundreds in the Old Testament. Prophecies about the coming Messiah, the coming Savior, or they have talked about eschatological prophecy or end-time prophecy, such as the book of Revelation, probably the most famous set of eschatological prophecy in the scriptures. But a great bulk of the prophecy we see in the Old Testament had to do with Israel, it had to do with certain people in Israel, and it had to do with the then-contemporary world. So it wasn't prophecy about way off down the road. It wasn't like one day your grandchildren's grandchildren's grandchildren will actually see this come to fruition. No, it was more limited in scope and more contemporary in scope, meaning it was going to happen probably pretty soon in your lifetime. In the case today, we receive prophecy that basically happens the next day, right? Water does come. They do prevail in battle. We see this in the text. Another example, King David King David has an affair with Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant. David has her husband killed so that he can have her all to himself. And as you can imagine, this doesn't please the Lord. So what does the Lord do? The Lord sends a prophet. Who does he send? He sends a prophet named Nathan to David. And Nathan is sent with a word of curse to tell David, this child that Bathsheba is now pregnant with is going to die. This is what shall come to pass. Thus says the Lord. And it's what happens. According to Deuteronomy 18, this is how you know if a prophet is real. Moses in Deuteronomy says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. 
But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, is to be put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. So that's pretty clear. How do you know a prophet's real? You look at the fruit. Do the things that a prophet says, which in this case are very specific, right? Water is going to show up. You guys are going to prevail in battle. This child that your mistress is pregnant with is going to die, right? There's no ambiguity there. And you may notice as well, it's not like heavily symbolic either, right? This is not some grand metaphor that we're having to untangle. How do you know if these things are true? They come to pass. They become reality. This is how you know a prophet's real. So this is what we'll see throughout the minor prophets. We'll see men who receive words from the Lord and thus have to declare them to the people, even when this means great hardship for them, even when it's the last thing the people want to hear, or in the case of Jonah, when it's something they just don't want to do, even when they believe God is real and they know he's true and powerful. So what about today? Are there still prophets today? And to this I would say yes and no. To begin, we have to realize that a number of things have changed between the time that we're reading about today in ancient Israel and today. First, in a broad sense, the Old Testament role of prophet, priest, and king have now been subsumed in the person of Christ. The Old Testament role of prophet, priest, and king are now fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, meaning Jesus is the perfect embodiment of these roles. He is clearly our king who has conquered sin and death. He is, according to Hebrews, our great high priest who is interceding on our behalf. And he is certainly the one who comes declaring the perfect word of the Lord. So Jesus is the ultimate prophet. And as a result, I believe that we should primarily look to him as such. Second, we have the word of the Lord in the form of the scriptures. And we believe that this word is complete. That God has not left anything out here, right? That there isn't some other book that God forgot to send to us, such as the Book of Mormon, right? That there aren't other things that God's up there going, oh, you know what? I forgot that. I need to tell some folks so that they can remember. No, no, no. We believe that this is inerrant and infallible, which means it is everything that God wants it to be. That anything in here that you might look at and go, how is that right? It is exactly what God would have it be. There's not more. There, there's not some major important point that God has like left out that he now needs to deliver to us. We have Jesus. We have the scriptures. And here's how Peter puts it. His divine power, Jesus' divine power, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him 
who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So notice what he's saying there. He's saying that because of what Christ has done, because of Jesus' divine power, He has granted now to us through that sacrifice everything we need as it pertains to life and godliness. That's a complete statement there. So the point is, Peter's not saying, yes, we have Jesus, but we also need these other things. He's saying, no, 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 what we have in Jesus Christ our Lord is complete, There's nothing we lack. If we have Christ, we have everything. Are you guys following me this morning? If we have Christ, we have everything. And that's huge. Like, we have to hold on to the truth of that. Also, John, the writer of Revelation, says this. This is 1 John 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Now, that doesn't mean that anybody that mentions Jesus or anybody that associates themselves with Jesus in some way is right and good and true. We have to be on guard. That's the primary point of what the New Testament writers are pointing us towards. We cannot be laissez-faire about this because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And, And the goal is to deceive Right? The goal is to fool and to trick. And this is not a new phenomenon. This is not a post-Jesus phenomenon. This is something that was plaguing the world of the minor prophets as well, especially during the divided kingdom. Because in the divided kingdom, you have kings in Judah and kings in Israel who completely abandon the way of the Lord and who go after false gods, pagan gods. This starts for Israel at the very beginning with King Jeroboam, who the people can't go down to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. And so he goes, no problem. I'll just set up pagan altars throughout the land, and you guys can go worship there. So that's where it starts, and it just devolves from there. So you have real God-loving, God-honoring, God-fearing prophets like Elijah and Elisha, that we see in the era of the divided kingdom. But then you have this pantheon of pagan prophets who are doing all kinds of things and saying all kinds of things and and honestly primarily are telling the people exactly what they want to hear, right? They're speaking good words to the people, right? The Bible talks about prophets who say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. And how the Lord detests that. You're lulling people into a sense of false confidence when the opposite is really true. You're telling them you're okay when the real message is repent and turn back to the Lord. Like, so that's an abomination to God, right? It's a complete affront to him and his way and his message. 
So don't believe every spirit. Instead, the onus is on you to test the spirits. When you hear something and you think, hmm, I wonder if that's true, you don't accept it at face value. You dig into it and figure out if it is real. So this is the place we find ourselves in today. We have everything we need for life and godliness through Christ as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. We know that there are many people out there who claim to be prophets and speak for God, but who may actually be false prophets. And the way you recognize them is the same way you've always recognized them, through their fruit, do the things they say come to pass. Is it real prophecy in the sense that the Scripture paints prophecy? So with all that said, there are prophets who come after the time of Jesus in the Scriptures, in the New Testament. For example, God sends Ananias to the Apostle Paul when he is struck with blindness on the road to Damascus. God sends a prophet who takes away his blindness. We see the prophet Agabus in Acts chapter 11, who predicted a famine, and it came to pass. John, the apostle, writes the prophetic book of Revelation. Also, the apostle Paul clearly says in Ephesians 4 that the gift of prophecy is necessary for building up the church, building up the body of Christ. But remember, the prophecy is primarily about declaring the word of the Lord. It's not primarily about telling the future. It's about truth-telling. And because we have the word of the Lord revealed through Christ, revealed through the scriptures, in a sense, when anybody shares the gospel, they are being prophetic. Whenever you tell somebody about Christ or about what he's done in your life, you are declaring the word of the Lord. What is true? That Jesus came and died and rose, and because of that, we have the opportunity to be reconciled to the Father. That's a prophetic word in the context of scripture. And even though prophecy isn't primarily about telling the future, because of Christ, because of the scriptures, we know what the future holds, don't we? We know what is to come, that Jesus will return, that he will bring the fullness of his kingdom near. And for those who love him, for those who have faith in him, for those who have believed in his name, we will be called beloved children of the Father, adopted into his family seated at his table, dining with him forever. We know what is to come. There are those who believe that biblical prophecy has now ceased, that it existed for maybe a short period in the New Testament, and it was necessary as the church was being developed, and, and, but now it's ended. And I'm not willing to go that far. I think God still speaks to people and through people. I also think that what he's primarily speaking through people is that which is already revealed in his word. The New Testament calls us to take an extremely cautious and skeptical posture when it comes to prophecy because, as we've read, there are many false prophets. Because of those who would posture themselves as pseudo-Christian fortune tellers, which is the posture of many televangelists these days. 
They're posturing themselves as prophets for profit. Send me your money because I make vague, random statements that could be true all the time. We'll see an example of this in a minute. We must hold any so-called prophecy up to the light of Scripture, right? Up to the lens of the gospel first. That's the test it has to pass. Is this true? If it passes the test, the Bible tells us to look for it to be fulfilled. If it's not fulfilled, it's not true. That's the fruit. So I'm going to leave you today with some false prophecy. So that hopefully you can kind of notice the difference. This is from Kenneth Copeland. And I know your grandma watches Kenneth Copeland. He's a well-known televangelist. And he says that this was downloaded into him by God as he was riding on an airplane. This is his prophecy for the year 2020. 2020 will be a year of great change. Wonderful and magnificent changes in the kingdom of God in the earth. I didn't know God's kingdom changed, by the way. I thought it was the same yesterday, today, and forever. Never mind. Changes that will come because of insights, ideas, and concepts directly from Jesus to his church by his mighty spirit. Glorious concepts of how his laws work. The laws governing increase and financial prosperity. The laws of the spirit that release miracles and divine healings and manifestations of his almighty power on the earth. New concepts of his love, his very person, for he is love. Insights into the true power and strength of his joy. There's more. It will be days of political change, great victories and great defeats. For the spiritual enemies of God and his people shall be crushed spirits, not flesh and blood. But there are those on both sides of the political divide who refuse to listen to the Lord Advocate General of the church. Their dreams shall be dashed, their desires shall be wounded, and they will be removed from their offices and replaced, some by ballot, some by tragedy, and some who in despair will quit and go do something else. End of prophecy. Here's what I want you to realize. This is not biblical prophecy. This is not the example, even the multiple examples that we've looked at today. This is no different from you going down to the tarot card lady over here on Texas Street and her going, I sense that you've experienced a great loss recently. And you go, well, my grandmother died five years ago. And she says, that's it. Right? This is no different than going to like a Las Vegas mentalist who has a crystal ball. These are extremely vague, predictive statements that you could argue are true in any year. 2020 will be days of political change. Hmm, I wonder if Kenneth Copeland knew there was going to be a presidential election in the year 2020. There will be people on both sides of the political spectrum who don't listen to the Lord. What a prophecy. There will be great victories and great defeats. Right on. Right on. Imagine if the three kings dying of thirst in the wilderness had come to Elijah, and Elijah had said, Okay, thus says the Lord, you're going to go into battle tomorrow, and some people are going to win, and some people are going to lose. End of prophecy. Some people are going to live, some people are going to die, some people are going to succeed, some people are going to fail. 
And because of all of this, there's going to be political changes. No doy. Right? Of course that's what's going to happen. That's something they already knew. It wasn't prophecy, right? That's because prophecy, although at times mysterious and symbolic, it deals in specificity. Elisha says, you will get water, you will prevail in battle. Agabus said a famine is coming, and it did. If Kenneth Copeland had said in 2020 there's going to be a worldwide pandemic and many thousands of people are going to die, then maybe my ears would perk up a little bit. Don't be fooled by this, guys. One, watch out for self-proclaimed prophets who seem to be in the business of prophecy. I'll share my secret message with you if you send me some money. Kenneth Copeland, by the way, according to Google, is worth an estimated $300 million. Isn't that crazy? Because people are falling for this left and right. Secondly, watch out for prophecy that has nothing to do with Christ or the message of the gospel. Right? Watch out for prophecy where that isn't a significant part of the equation. What God is accomplishing through his son. If a prophet says, the Lord tells you to repent, it's not prophecy because we already have it here. Yes, the Lord calls you to repent. The Lord calls you to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ. That's not a mystery. That's not something that's obscured to us. Do not be fooled. If somebody truly has a word from the Lord, at the very least, it should be approached with great humility. Great humility. For the minor prophets, though, the sin of the people is what is primarily in view. They are a people who have strayed far from the will of God and the worship of God. And God, in his grace and mercy, sends the prophets to warn the people of what will happen if they don't repent. And praise God that he has done the same thing for us through Christ. Our king, our priest, our prophet, who comes bringing words of peace and joy and comfort, who comes with a light load that brings life and hope. He is the one that we put our trust in. He is the one whose words our lives are built like a firm foundation like a house built on a rock, not like a house built on shifting sand. The words of the true prophet. Let's pray. Father, Father, help us because it is so easy to be deceived. And we live in a world today where deceptors are numerous. And the schemes of the enemy are tricky and are often not obvious or blatant and it's why they're effective father even our own flesh longs to hear words that please us or bring us comfort or give us power or words that say that we're entitled to money or wealth or luxury God, those are things that our flesh desires. 
And while you are gracious at times to give us some of those things, Father, we recognize that the only thing we're truly entitled to is death. Because we have all fallen short of your glory, and it is only through your grace that there would be any other option for us. And so, Father, as we begin this study, help us to hold fast to what is true. Help us to be on guard against the schemes of the enemy in our own life. And words that we might hear, Father, may we hold them up to the lens of the gospel, the lens of scripture, and consider the fruit. Seeking to rest in the sure, unchanging, finished work of Christ. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.